history needs to be experienced by looking at it, by feeling it, by smelling it, by touching it. And here at the Tudor and 17th century experience, that's what we do for our visitors. We help them step back in time and feel history. I want to thank my dear friend, Brigitte Webster, for joining me again on the podcast to talk about Christmas past, specifically Tudor and 17th century Christmas, as experienced at Old Hall. Welcome, Brigitte, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, hello, and I am privileged of being here again. As you know, I absolutely enjoy chatting to you. Well, it's it's my pleasure, and it's just thrilling. Brigida and I first met in England on a tour with Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and we have been friends since then, and it's just terrific. Now, you are an expert, and so I know that you have been decorating Old Hall with some time-appropriate Christmas decor. Can you tell us about that, about what you're using, and how some of us might be able to tutorify our homes a little bit this holiday season? Yes, of course. Um, well, I love living history, as I've explained. And at Christmas, there is no exception to that rule. I do try and see whatever I can do to make this place feel more Tudor authentic. So last year, I started looking into all sorts of documents and recordings from the 16th century on how buildings were decorated, especially for Christmas tide. And I found it hugely interesting in what I discovered. So I now know for sure that ivy and holly were used to decorate not just churches, but also people's home. And more specifically, ivy seems to have been used on the outside of the front door, where holly inside. And uh, there is even one record uh, from St. Mary on the Hill Church in Chester, where we have records, probably from the 1540s, that very clearly describe that candles were stuck together with a line of holly. Where exactly that featured, we don't know, but it, it reads very much like it was either on some kind of windowsill or somewhere where the candles could stand in a line and in and around the candle was holly. Interestingly, from about 1600 onwards, we, we seem to find more and more evidence that also rosemary and bay leaves were used. And I found one particular example uh, 
quite locally here at a Norwich church where they even mention laurel. But that was the only evidence of laurel being used. And um, having done quite intensive research on that subject, I have to confess I found no evidence whatsoever for mistletoe being used. You know, everybody these days seems to suggest that this is some very ancient tradition, but none, none of any of the documents I looked at mentioned mistletoe in any form or shape. And the other interesting um, discovery I made is that during the reign of Edward VI, it really seems that any decking of the halls seems to disappear completely. And that could be because, obviously, the Protestant reformers regarded everything that the Roman Catholic Church held important as trivial. So it could be very, very well that the Protestants decided any greenery around Christmas is not necessary and detracts from the real faith. Um, and then I found it quite sweet to discover that Elizabeth I, however, you know, being known a Protestant queen, but she herself paid for holly and ivy to deck the palace, uh, this Whitehall Palace, uh, each Christmas. So I found that quite sweet to see that uh, even though she was a Protestant monarch, she still had this feminine touch in wanting to display something to make the palace look more Christmassy. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful detail. And to yeah. think that she paid for it herself is, yeah. is lovely. Yeah. There is actually a lovely little poem I found as well. It, it dates to the 15th century. So we are probably talking late 1400s and Henry VII time. It's only four lines long, but it does very much support the idea that holly was used indoors and ivy outdoors and that the holly was regarded as a masculine um a male form of a decoration where the ivy was the opposite the feminine do you want me to quickly read it to you yes that would be wonderful thank you what whether i pronounce it correctly is obviously a different matter but i'll give it my best best go uh it goes Nay, Ivy, nay, it shall not be, I wise. Let Holly have the master as the manner is. Holly stood in the hall, fair to behold. Ivy stood without the door. She is full, so a cold. I'll write. Uh, I'll send you the uh, the text, the transcribed text as well. But uh, I, I find it quite interesting that it does very specifically refer to the holly and the ivy, and holly being 
inside in the hall or at the porch and ivy to be outside left in the cold. Yes, that's wonderful. And I can imagine people even singing something like that, like, you know, as a Christmas hymn or something. Exactly. It just seems like. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, but oh, to come back to your original question, I think to, to get a little bit of to the Christmas decor into your homes should be very easy. Just a nice little candle surrounded by a little bit of holly and ivy. And you've got the perfect Tudor Christmas decoration. And it's, it's good for the environment because no tree has to be killed in the making of your decoration. I go around and just snip some overhanging branches and um, that's fine. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And I know you've posted recently some images of Old Hall decked for Christmas and it's beautiful. So these are some great ideas that thank you very much. Now, speaking of beautiful, I know you and your husband recently got some new Tudor clothing to kick off your holiday season with this, you know, beautiful gown that you and Tom, this beautiful attire, you were ready in your beautifully decorated home and your beautifully decorated selves. Now you are ready to host a Tudor Christmas experience at Old Hall. Tell us about this first Tudor Christmas experience at Old Hall. It was amazing. Uh, it was so much fun for everybody involved. And I was so lucky to have a number of volunteers who were very keen to just come and help. Uh, a lot of them came in to the costumes and some came to work behind the scenes. But without that team of volunteers, it, it simply would not have happened. So I am eternally grateful to my fabulous team of volunteers. And what we did, we had 50 people a give or take one or less, uh, but it was roughly 50 people. And um, we had to divide them into smaller groups of 10 or less because here in England we have very strict um, COVID regulations and any indoor event has to be less than 10 people in any room at any time. So that's what we did. We decided, okay, we're going to divide them into smaller groups. And we offered them a type of circuit activities program. So they do something for half an hour and then they move on to a different room and do something else there. And that way it worked very well. So we had a, a group that started with the house tour, and that was led by myself, by Tom, and a third volunteer, all in Tudor dress and outfit. And uh, we showed them uh, the, the principal rooms. Um, we explained the history of the house and the family who lived here, who built it, uh, and answered any questions that the people had on 
uh, the furniture or the paintings or whatever they saw and they wanted to know about. And uh, obviously, they all noticed the decorations, the Tudor decorations, but I think they mostly enjoyed the fireplaces uh, that we had lit for a little bit of warmth because uh, we don't have any central heating here. And um, to comply with COVID regulations, we also had to have the windows slightly open to allow fresh air to circulate. And that on that very, very cold day made the house mm, Tudor authentically cold. We did warn the all our visitors and said, please do bring cold, uh, warm coats, uh, gloves and hats. You might need them. And some of them did. Um, and uh, so they were taking, taken through the house for half an hour. And then they joined um, Jay, uh, who was performing to the music in our to the uh, great hall downstairs. And she was accompanied by a lute player, Christina, who was just absolutely awesome as well. And together they performed various um, uh, three um well, songs, I, I, I'm now not sure whether song is the right word, but um, Jay sang for us, O Death, Rock Me Asleep, which is believed to have been written by Anne Boleyn a few days before her execution. And then she delighted us with Pastime with Good Company, which was composed by Henry VIII himself. And the third one they performed was A Virgin Most Pure, because we also wanted to bring in something um, Christmassy. And that tells the story of Jesus being born and so on. And that was absolutely lovely because in between her singing, she also explained about the music, the instruments, and uh, we also had a piece of 16th century music sheets. And she explained to the visitors the difference between reading notes and music then to compare to now. So it was very educational, but also exceptionally moving, hearing her sound, her angelic um, voice in a room that was was designed originally in 1500 to host entertainment like this. So, yeah, that was very moving indeed. And after half an hour, having enjoyed the music, they then went on to uh, the kitchen. And in the kitchen, uh, the visitors enjoyed Hippocras, which is a spiced red wine, and Twelfth Night Cake, uh, which I made myself to a an authentic recipe. It is the equivalent to the modern-day Christmas cake um, with lots of spices, 
and it's it's basically a sweet bread with lots of spices and um, dried fruit, but um, surprisingly moist and really nice. And a lot of people said to me they would not have thought that it's anything could be so delicious that contains raisins, something they detest. So that was a huge compliment. And while they were eating and drinking uh, to the Christmas festive food and drinks, uh, another volunteer uh, told them all about the customs and traditions that were common in Tudor times around Christmas. And the last station, the last activity they would um enjoy before they went home was they were invited to go vassailing in our orchard. Now, vassailing is uh, something that um, is meant or was meant to encourage a healthy apple crop the next year. And what people did is they took a drink of cider or sometimes ale, which they then um, um, they added spice spices like uh, nutmeg and ginger and obviously sugar um, and baked apples. And that drink they took in a vassail bowl, which was basically a very very big wooden bowl and they took that into the orchard and there they would then dunk um, bread or again sweet bread into it um, eat a little bit of it I presume um, but stuck some of it into the apple trees or pear trees and gave a little bit of that wassailing drink which is sometimes also referred to as lamb's wool to the roots of um every single uh, fruit tree um, in order to encourage a better crop the next year. Uh, and it, it, the whole custom predates the Tudor times, but it definitely was carried out by farmers in Tudor times. And it seems that people do it again. Uh, it seems to be quite a fashionable thing now in um, 21st century England, especially amongst people who have an orchard or are interested in heritage fruits and uh, orchards. That's really interesting. I've heard about wassail, but I've never heard of, of giving some to the trees like that. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I find that and that was the fun bit we did. So it, originally that bowl would have been passed from one recipient to the next. Well, we obviously gave everybody their own little cup, uh, but originally that big cup would have been uh, passed around and um, uh, everybody was singing or crying out, Rassail, and the person who had a drink and passed it on to the next person would respond by saying, Drink Hile. So you have all this drink aisle and vassal and drink aisle and vassal going on in the orchard, which, yeah, I suppose is 
quite <laughs> interesting. And we did that. So everybody who joined, every visitor was allowed to also do a bit of vassail and drink high, but we cheated and everybody was entitled to have their own little cup. <laughs> Well, I think probably in these days, especially, that's a good a little modification there. That sounds wonderful. What a great experience for those lucky people who are able to join you. And will this be an annual event? Oh, I think so. Uh, we had so many more people who wanted to book tickets, but because we were limited to 50 um because of the strict COVID regulations, we, we had to really cut it at 50. But we had a huge waiting list. And I am convinced that next year, several will return. Um, and so, yeah, definitely an annual event now. <laughs> it was also, yeah, it was so, so much fun. And everybody engaged and everybody before they left, uh, came and thanked us and said, it's so cool to do something like this. And it's so different to anything else they've ever done. And yes, basically everybody was very excited. And uh, all my volunteers are coming back. They said, in fact, quite a few of our visitors asked whether they could be volunteers as well, because they thought so much enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, that's wonderful to hear about. So everyone, mark your calendars and start preparing for that. Now, when I think of Christmas and the holidays, I have to say, in, in addition to all those wonderful things, I do start thinking about food and special treats and beyond the 12th night cake. <laughs> Can you tell us some of the things that might be on the menu at Christmas time that wouldn't be there any other times, or what are the some of the special Christmas treats in Tudor times? Right. Well, one that we probably are still familiar with are the mince pies. But the major difference is that nowadays mince pies are only sweet. In Tudor England, they consisted of quite a portion of meat, shredded leftover mutton, or sometimes veal, um, suet, which is fat, animal fat, sugar, dried fruits, spices, uh, and sometimes they also con uh, consisted um, other little things that, you know, the, the, the cook decided needed to go in like apples. But generally, that... Uh, is the main uh, ingredients, meat, 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 and meat again. And uh, I always make my mince pies with uh, lamb. And I can honestly say it really is delicious. Uh, I had my doubts before I first tasted it, but it really is delicious. And I would encourage everybody who gets an opportunity to actually try it. Uh, another really quite popular Christmas dish was the plum porridge. So not the plum pudding that came later, the plum porridge. And plum porridge was basically a really thick broth of, again, mutton or beef 
with plums, uh, bread, spices and dried fruit uh, mixed in with wine and sometimes ale. So something quite different to what we would envisage. Um, and there's obviously also the figgy pudding. Um, the figgy pudding starts to appear in the late Tudor age, so around, you know, the 1580s, 1590s, and it was a kind of sweet dish made from almonds, wine, figs, raisins, ginger and honey. And that's quite delicious. I, I really quite like that. Um, and it was served together with uh, any meat uh, uh, meals. Um, and then we have the um, very popular brawn. It was popular then, not so popular now. I suggest or would have thought it's basically a very salty piece of pork or boar and was served with mustard. And uh, it was available to most people. So even people who weren't nobility or uh, wealthy had access to brawn at Christmas, and it therefore was a very popular dish. But I have to admit, it's the only thing I've ever cooked that I felt was not that nice. But, you know, it probably was because it was just too salty for my taste. Um, one interesting Tudor uh, dish is turkey. Now, turkey started to appear in England during the 16th century. But it was really only at the very end of the 16th century that it started to be used as a Christmas dinner bird. Um, it always used to be goose. And even though Turkey was very popular and people with money were very keen on using it and eating it, it took its time to push the goose out of its place as the main poultry for Christmas. And um, then there, there was obviously also a kind of stuffing to go with any bird served. Uh, it was known as force meat and it contained egg, currant, um, pork, uh, herbs, and uh, the first time we have a proper recorded dish by the name of stuffing, uh, which occurred with poultry, comes from uh, 1538. Um, and basically, those are the true Christmas dishes that you would see. Uh, but every feast always followed with a banquet, which was the sweet dessert course. Uh, but that wasn't specifically Christmas. That followed any major feast. But uh, obviously Christmas was no exception there. And uh, I personally think that at the Christmas uh, meal, uh, those um, 
sweetmeats would probably take on the shape of something Christmassy. And in Tudor times, that was most likely something to do with uh, the holy couple and their child, uh, Jesus, or, or something along like that, or, or maybe the Margie appearing, you know, something like that, definitely. But unfortunately, I was unable so far to discover any authentic 16th century documents telling us what shape or form they could have come in, especially for Christmas. But it does make sense that since they shaped them for other things during the year, they would have shaped them. Yes, yes, yes. And obviously, we also shouldn't forget that food was also a big thing to be given as Christmas presents, or rather on the 1st of January. Um, And we, we have books upon books that do nothing but list um, account books and recordings on what piece of food was given and received by whom, when, which year. A little bit like English people sometimes record who gave them a Christmas card (laughs) and who received one. In in Tudor uh, England, it was very common to take stock of what was given and what was um, received. And food features heavily. Um, and we, uh, especially Elizabeth I, she was given all sorts of stuff, uh, um, starting from March paints, uh, pies of quinces, uh, spices, boxes of spices, sugar loaves, just plain sugar loaves, uh, baskets of um, oranges and and, uh, jars of preserved cherries because we mustn't forget that any fruit that appeared out of season was therefore very special and rare and preserved cherries at Christmas were something really special and therefore worthy to be given to a queen. I love the idea of giving the queen some cherries that you have preserved. I mean, that would be quite a special gift. Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, But you see, even uh, the poor people were encouraged to give presents to their monarch. And um, they were allowed to gift something quite simple like pears and apples because even pears and apples at Christmas time are something special because these poor farmers or tenants had to make sure that they last from the time of their harvest to Christmas time. And so everybody could give something and gift their monarch something. But obviously, if a very wealthy person would give nothing but a few pears, that would have been considered highly inappropriate. But um, even the lowest in rank were encouraged and almost expected to give at Christmas something they could afford. That's really interesting. And it is a way of the queen connecting with her people and receiving those gifts. And if it was an appropriate gift for your place in life, 
then you got your moment of, you know, shining. That's wonderful. I love that idea of carefully preserving cherries or a pear or whatever it is through the harvest and taking, you know, making sure it's preserved right because it's going to the queen. And what I find fascinating is that it was deemed to be important enough that it was registered who gave what. For instance, uh, I I just um, have a few examples here to show you how detailed that recording was. For instance, for Christmas, in uh, 1567, she was gifted some cheese in a case by somebody called Triford, who was a clerk. So he was not a well-earning person, but we know his name, we know his profession, and we know exactly what he gave the Queen in 1567 on New Year's Day. And there are numerous examples of that where commoners are mentioned by name and what they gave. Only occasionally does it say a poor woman or a poor man gave this and that. For Christmas, generally you appear, you can see the name as well as the gifted item. And to me, that's just so interesting and it shows that especially Elizabeth did value all her citizens, all her people who were there. They were her children. They were her people. And to me, that's just priceless. Right. And if you knew that your gift was being recorded, was being taken that seriously, that would be quite something for a clerk or someone to know yeah. that this gift he this gift of cheese he had given the queen was you know exactly. recorded yeah. and and now we know hundreds of years later yeah. that's really yeah. quite wonderful and I, I wonder if I sent uh, something a cheese to the queen today I very much doubt I will be recorded as <laughs> Mrs Brigitte Webster having sent a cheese from Norfolk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you decide to try that, please do let me know, (laughs) especially if you get a copy of the recording. Well, that's wonderful to think about. So is there anything else that you would like to share with us? Because I know this is such a special season and you do so much. Anything I haven't asked or anything you would like to share with us about Christmas at Old Hall and Christmas in Tudor and 17th century times? Because we are here in a manor house, I always try to find out what the lord and the lady of this manor would have done for the people around us. And uh, one um, one thing that I found was that um, Advent obviously was the time in Tudor England where people were meant to fast again. You know, they did it during Lent before uh, Easter, but they also were expected, especially before the Reformation, to fast between the first of Advent and Christmas Day, as we know, Christmas tide. Um, But it was a tradition, there was this tradition that the wealthier members of society, people like the Lord and 
the lady of a manor, were supposed to extend their hospitality to those in their community community that were less fortunate. Um, And it was the custom that their tenants um, would send presents, again presents, to the landlord, which was the lord, the lord and the lady, um, and uh, such as capons and uh, pigs and cheese and rabbits and baskets of apple. But it's it's quite interesting because they did that because they knew that giving a present would mean that the lord and the lady had to gift something back. You could never accept a present just as a present and leave it at that. You always had to give something in return. And the tenants were definitely hoping that that meant that they would be invited to have a proper meal at the big house um, and probably get to eat something they would not be able to afford themselves. So a kind of meat that was above their station, uh, possibly uh, rabbit. There are numerous uh, records of rabbits being served to tenants by the Lord um, and um, or pies, beef, pies, something like that. Um, and, yeah, it, it's, it, it just shows that um, society was much better geared at looking after those that had less. And if you were wealthy and you didn't do that, you were looked upon as somebody failing doing their duty. Um, And I find that very interesting to compare it to the modern attitude, the super wealthy. What do they do to look after those that are not so fortunate? And um, I think the answer lies in that people should look after the less fortunate within their community because you can see what's needed. You can see where you can help and how you can help. And uh, I think that's something we might have lost, sadly. Well, and it's a wonderful notion that it was considered their duty, those who were wealthy and who had more, it was part of their duty to look after their community and to take care of tenants and servants and those who worked on the farms and all of those um, kinds of things. So that's a really wonderful sort of societal contract that, you know, these people work really hard and then they're invited to a meal where they can, you know, really enjoy something they would only enjoy at Christmas time by invitation that would be pretty special. Yeah. So that's wonderful. Yeah. And, and it seem, it clearly seems to have also meant something for the people who were invited back to enjoy a proper, big, possibly quite lavish meal uh, with 
their lord. Um, and, and that uh, I also find touching that it meant something uh, to them to be treated by their lord to a meal, where I think these days, I don't know, I suppose we still get excited if we win a <laughs> a meal with some celebrity. We get excited and think, "Oh yeah!" I, I suppose you could, could compare it a little bit like that, couldn't you? But but there is, as you say, I think there's something different if you feel like this person who's sharing this wealth and this amazing meal is someone who's looking out for you. Yeah, yes, I think so. Well, I think what you're doing to keep Old Hall alive and well and allow people, I love that phrase you used, to not just step back in time, but for people to really feel the history and immerse themselves in the history and what we can learn from that, I think is really wonderful and a great gift to all of us. So, Brigida, thank you so much for joining us and sharing the holidays and Christmas tide and the gifts being exchanged on the new year and all of those things. We have learned so much from you, and I so appreciate your joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I, I thoroughly enjoy chatting to you, and I feel very valued being asked and allowed to come and talk to you. <laughs> Thank you to my friend, Brigitte Webster, for inviting us to spend Christmas at Old Hall. It's clear that from the Tudor times right up to the present, the Old Hall is a special place at Christmas. I hope you are all enjoying your holiday season I hope you're well and safe and happy. Thank you for joining us, and let's keep shaking up history together. <music>